This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, I have Nicholas Chalen, uh, who's got a lot of awesome stuff going on, but first, we'll do some admin. If you guys are interested in donating, the link will be in the uh, show notes. Nick, go ahead and uh, tell us about yourself and kind of how you ended up working in the DoD space. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm the the former chief software officer for the Air Force and Space Force. I was the first uh, uh, CSO in in the U.S. government. Uh, before that, I was uh, the special advisor for cyber and DevSecOps at OSD, and before that, I was the chief architect at DHS. Uh, but more importantly, I, I founded and and created and sold uh, twelve companies on the commercial side before uh, working for the government. Uh, of course, you can tell with my accent, I wasn't born in the United States. I was born in France and moved uh, to the U.S. about uh, twelve years ago. Uh, became a U.S. citizen actually. Uh, uh, funny enough, a month before starting at DHS, because I actually uh, was really uh, eager uh, to make a difference and uh, come and, and, and uh, do my best to bring value uh, uh, to the taxpayers and, and our nation. So uh, I, I realized pretty quick I couldn't do it if I wasn't a citizen. So uh, the minute after I became a citizen, we already had everything lined up for me to uh, to come at DHS. Uh, uh, and for once, it already, already uh, only took 30 days, which is pretty good, right, for the government. Uh, to get yeah. onboarded at DHS and then, uh, you know, move to DOD after that. Well, that's great. Well, there's uh, there's so many things I want to unpack with that. One, uh, so just for people who don't really understand the uh, CSO, so the Chief Software Officer, uh, what, is that, what does that entail? Like, what are you trying to achieve in that role? Yeah, so the, the, the CSO role is really uh, a new role that's designed to bring um, enterprise services to remove bottlenecks with the adoption of uh, uh, digital transformation, innovation, you know, DevSecOps, which is kind of the uh, software lifecycle of, of uh, moving from development all the way to production multiple times a day instead of waiting, you know, years uh, to get there and, and having the ability to uh, get feedback rapidly from the warfighter so we know what sticks, what works what not to waste time on and be more agile and efficient uh, in spending taxpayer money. And so it's a, it's a massive enabler, both of the cloud adoption. So we, we created the, the cloud office, cloud one and platform one in DoD, which are the, uh, the DevSecOps platform team to really uh, uh, remove all those bottlenecks. And, uh, you know, we had so many teams building their own DevSecOps stack in a vacuum, spending a year, uh, you know, dozens of meetings 
a year of funding to build uh, uh, the, all that automation to build software so they can then focus on their mission software uh, instead of directly focusing on their mission software, which is why they exist. And so by, by bringing this uh, enterprise service of uh, cloud and DevSecOps, we remove all these um, uh, bottlenecks and uh, uh, you know uh, vacuum-driven uh, uh, work to accelerate the focus on the mission software and more importantly, enable the release of software multiple times a day, all the way to, to SAP and, and weapon systems uh, for something that used to be, you know, maybe at best once a year to, to, to five year cycles, uh, which actually increase, um, you know, both the uh, safety, security, uh, you know, and of course, uh, uh, enables us to make sure we're not wasting uh, taxpayer money after five years waking up and realizing we built something that no nobody cares for, you know, so. Well, and that's something as an end user, I was actually having a conversation with a friend yesterday who uh, was kind of talking about uh, just the, the, the detachment between the end user and then the engineers and, and how little kind of communication there, uh, there can be there. So what was your experience previously in, in how that communication happened between the development of programs and the end user feedback? And then how is that changing today? Well, that's kind of part of the problem, you know, when you, uh, you do things in, in vacuums, in labs in in silos, you know, uh, Often there were some representation of end users, although I, I would always argue that it wasn't really the actual end user, but more the leadership of the end user, which you know usually means that it's not the actual people t touching the the weapon, right? And so it's it's not really the kind of feedback we really needed. Um, and so with with DevSecOps, though, you, you're able to continuously release, you know, in production and get get that real time feedback from the actual uh, real world fighter and. Uh, you know, that removes the bottleneck, that removes the uh, disconnect between the development side and the production side. And more importantly, you know, you don't have uh, uh, anything in the middle to prevent you from getting that feedback rapidly uh, multiple times a day. So you end up saving, I think overall with 27 programs uh, in the first year, moving to DevSecOps, we saved 100 years of time. And I always tell people we didn't really save 100 years of time, we just didn't waste it. You know, that's, that's an interesting uh, difference. <laughs> Um, you know, China and, and Russia are not waiting for us to figure it out. And so, you know, when you look at the adoption of DevSecOps and the scale, that's just in one year, it compounds over time. Overall, what we've seen is uh, because of the uh, ability to continuously accredit the software multiple times a day, uh, we saved between uh, 12 to 18 months of time per program, per five-year cycle. And then uh, thanks to the rapid feedback between the Wolffighter and the development team, we saved a, an additional 12 to 18 months of time as well. So you compound that to about you know three years out of five years per program of time saved. So that's a massive amount of, of time uh, on the schedule, but also on the, on the funding side. Yeah, well, and you think if you look at just other programs like you know, obviously I like airplanes, but you know if you're looking at the F-22 or or really any program, we're talking 12, 15 years between the beginning of the development and the execution of it. So I can only imagine there's that same problem set in the kind of software development uh, areas there. What was it like uh, when you're, so you're obviously have developed companies and in the private sector and then you move into the DOD and then now all of a sudden you, you realize that are, they're probably 
it's probably a different world. I would assume. What was, what was that experience like? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Uh, uh, I guess serving in duty was both the most frustrating and frustrating uh, time in my career, but at the same time, the most rewarding and and, uh, the the thing I I miss the most, you know, the, 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 the value we, we ended up bringing, uh, I hope, to to the nation and and to our kids to have a fighting chance at uh, winning against China twenty years from now is is so important. But uh, at the same time, you know, you compare kind of the commercial world and the DoD, you're gonna you're gonna find pretty much that everything is wrong. You know, there is not much that's good. Um, you, you, we feel pretty good about the amount of money we're spending. You know, eight hundred billion a year. But I can tell you, we probably waste ninety cents on the dollar. So, so by by that I mean about sixty cents I'll spend on on useless acquisition uh, bureaucracy. You know that were created mostly to prevent fraud, all to end up wasting more money that it would waste in terms of uh, actual fraud. You know, and that's uh, kind of the solution being worse than the uh, the problem. Um, and, and then you're gonna see, you know, about twenty twenty cents spent on the wrong things. You know, buying outdated you know, capabilities that don't don't make sense because we were uh, told to to guess what we had to buy five years ahead. And, and so we're stuck in time because of the disastrous, you know, uh, congressional uh, funding process with Congress and, and kind of stuck in time, you know, five years ahead, uh, which, you know, really makes no sense. Um, and then you're going to see, you know, about 10% not working out. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you're left with 10% left. But on top of that, when I used to get a quote for any kind of work, what used to cost, let's say, 50K on the commercial side would cost half a mil on the duty side. And, and, and so you, you would see 10x cost, but you also see uh, about 7x more time to do it. So, so not only you pay 10x, but you, 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 you get it done you know, seven times slower uh, which, <laughs> which is just mind-boggling when you compound all that uh, over over the time and, and over the billions we spent. Um, so it's 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 pretty scary. And then you're gonna find, of course, um, because of the the size of the behemoth that is DoD, you're gonna find uh, you know so many silos and egos and and you know and and even when you have a good solution, you know I've seen it countless times where, for example, you know the the team we created at Platform One created the the largest implementation of zero trust. Which is a, a new cyber well not that new but you know six years old now cyber principle but I guess for yeah. DoD it's pretty new right and and so now finally the DoD woke up and after all of the leadership fighting me for years telling me that they were they were not hundred percent sure if zero trust was the the way forward um, now they of course they, they decided it was time to do it and now they are experts in zero trust right because that's what they are overnight. Um, and, and so those people, you know, instead of reusing the work we've done at Platform One, which was the largest implementation of Zero Trust, we got it in production in 45 days on the N-Class side. After a year, we had it, you know, across fabrics and designed to be running all the way to SAP and, you know, completely capable of doing that from the day, from day one with very little, you know, money, about two million bucks and, and uh, you know, uh, 12 people, um, which was the largest implementation of Zero Trust in the U.S. government at the time. And now, you know, you see this, uh, you know, putting um, Booz Allen on contract saying, hey, we're going to we're going to try to to create a, a second option, which is which is fine to have options. Right. So they they say we're going to, you know, give them 12 million bucks or whatever the funding is and, you know, give them six months. Um, and after six months, they're like, well, you know, they couldn't deliver it. And uh, so now we also realize that maybe we should uh, 
have asked uh, Buzalan to do it, not just on the N-Class side, but also on the classified side. And maybe we should have thought that uh, as one of the requirements, the software should be able to run on the high side. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty obvious. You should probably have done that from day one. You know, you can do zero trust and just have N-Class stuff and no ability to do uh, classified work. That's just common sense. Um, and in, in fact, when we designed the, the platform one zero trust stack, it was designed from day one to be uh, capable of doing classified work. You know, that's just obvious to anybody spending five minutes in the, in the department. And so now they're going to give 18 months of time additional to the six months for Booz to come and fix, you know, fix their six months MVP that never even got deployed, uh, to production after six months, uh, when we did it in 45 days. And now they're going to get 18 more months and more money and more time. All initially supposedly to create a backup solution in case, you know, the stuff we do uh, wasn't good enough. But the fact is it is and it's in production and it works. <laughs> uh, on the contrary, their stuff is still not even up and running uh, anywhere after, you know, what is now probably 10 months. Uh, and that's a good example, right, of the nonsense you see driven either by uh, by inability to buy. You know, I think that the acquisition the, the waterfall process is still very much there. No ability to understand agility and agile, you know, procurement. Uh, so we're buying, you know, with a big prime, uh, showing up with a turnkey solution, allegedly a big black box versus what we did in, in, in platform one. We had uh, uh, the government uh, effectively be the, the prime integrator. Um, then we had, you know, eight companies on contract. Not one company was responsible for the whole thing, so it was pretty much buying, you know, FTEs and people and, and spreading them and and uh, making sure that we could uh, deliver the capability rapidly in an agile fashion with the government being really the the product owner and the the integrator, you know, and, and that's the way we should buy everything, right? Um, the more we get stuck, the more we buy black boxes, the more we we have these massive contracts. Um, the, the, the less agile you become and the more locked in you become to a single company. So I have so many questions there. So, uh, <laughs> with the, uh, so first we'll tackle the, uh, you kind of talked about a little bit, the contracting side of it, but why does it seem that the moment it's a DOD purchase that the price goes way up and the timeline goes way out? Is it because our contracting and we don't, force them and we hold their feet to the fire and actually make them give us good product in a timely manner? Or is it some other thing that I'm unaware of? It's multiple things, right? One, we create a lot of bureaucracy and nightmares, right? So companies have to deal with the clearance process. They have to deal with all these cyber requirements that are often compliance driven, not really security driven. You know, we just require CMMC and all this nonsense. There's a lot of stuff that people have to do to do business with DOD. Uh, creates a lot of uh, nightmares, right? We also made sure that by doing that, we reduce the ability of other companies to come and compete. So we have less options, which means less competition. So if we have less competitions, you know, people are going to raise the price because they don't care because they know that, you know, no one else is going to come to undercut the price, right? And and usually they know kind of who is uh, pricing what at what price. So then they can align the prices, right? More or less, whether it's direct or not, which is illegal, but you know, I'm sure they find a way to do it anyways. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, you're going to find the, the defense judicial base really capable of, of kind of uh, living in the bubble that is the DoD, right? There's a Silicon Valley bubble, but there's also the, the DoD bubble, right? Um, so that's one piece. There's another piece of like, you know, how we buy it and how we, um, 
describe it in the contract and and so it's it's not agile it's waterfall we need you know five-year planning and all this nonsense that just compounds a problem right we also buy the wrong things you know with the wrong people by making it a bloated purchase right someone that's supposed to show up with uh you know a jet with the software on it and the sensors and all the stuff right so a bunch of subs uh instead of just buying you know if you need good software you buy it to a software company right and then you, you need a good engine you're gonna go to an engine you're not gonna come see me hopefully you know we're pretty stupid um, but that's what we do, right? We go to these big companies and say, hey, you, you're not that good in software, but hey, we're still going to use you uh, because we want a holistic uh, turnkey solution uh, because we actually don't want to do the work. You know, the fact is uh, the government is either not capable, competent, or, or willing to uh, do the real hard job of integration, right? Which is what we should do. If you if you run a company, right? You see, you create a, you create a, you want to create a, a drone or jet tomorrow, um, what you would do if you don't want to do all of it and you're a small company, you would you would start, you know, just like SpaceX did, right? They would go find partners to do pieces of the stuff, but then they would also do a lot internally and learn and slowly but surely, you know, do more and more uh, themselves to have a control of your supply chain and, and so on. But And then you could decide what, you, what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? So the engine, they would go, you know, uh, delegate. And then the, the software, they would create a pretty massive team, not that, that big, but very good, you know, competent team. Uh, dedicated uh, to to do agile software, right? And that's what we don't do, right? Uh, we should think as a company. That's why you know I was so disruptive, I guess, in the government uh, because of my uh, entrepreneur background, right? You you show up and I just how my brain works. I don't need to think about it. You know, it's just it's just what I it's just common sense to me. I don't need to think twice. Unfortunately, a lot of the government people have never run a business uh, or understand much about. Uh, real life outside of DoD, and, and it just creates this vicious cycle, right? The, the the government people end up leaving, go work for the primes that they gave a bunch of money to, right? So they want a cushy job. They don't want to disrupt too much, right? They don't want to make too much noise. I didn't care. I sold 12 companies. I don't, I don't need to work anymore, right? So I could just, you know, sleep all day. I'm not going to do that. I'm 38. But, but the fact is that that gave me the freedom and the ability to be a little bit more noisy compared to what, you know, most people would do. And not care about, hey, you know, I'm going to burn bridges, you know, all these uh, big companies are not going to want to hire me. Well, I don't care because I didn't want to work there anyways. So you know, it's just, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's part of the cycle, right? Because then they end up working there and they, all they know is what they, they've seen in DoD. So now they're, they're selling more of what they know. And so it's a continuous vicious cycle, right? It's never going to change because you're not bringing fresh air from the outside, and quite honestly, the system is designed to be like like that, right? You you find the clearance process, and you find you know if you if you look at the SES, you know senior executive service, which is pretty much like you have to be a you know almost like voted member by three other SES, you know, with a secret handshake to to become one with all this uh, special paperwork, right? It, it's designed to be almost like a a cult like you know model, you know. It's not an accident. It's not just like they woke up and. You know, if you're a CEO or CTO of a publicly traded company, you have less paperwork to do, and I was one of, of them, to to do work on the public, uh, you know, uh, market than what you would have to do to become an SES in the government. It just makes no sense. You know, that's designed on purpose. So people, and by the way, you take a massive pay cut, right? <laughs> so, so you're going to tell people, hey, you're going to come serve. That's great. But you're going to take a massive pickup. We're going to give you all this paperwork. You're going to get the clearance. You're going to have to wait months, right? And then you see these special lobbying groups, right? You see, uh, um, you know, more recently, Eric Schmidt, right, former Google guy, created this this uh, foundation, right? And he's literally paying 
people that are waiting to be appointed, you know, if it takes seven months, eight months to be confirmed and stuff like that, they are getting paid, right? The seven months by the foundation while waiting for the job, right? Which, of course, then you go into the government job and you have no conflict of interest, right? You were paid by, <laughs> by, a, by a foundation <laughs> uh, just for fun. You know, they just gave you money because they love you, you know. There was no expectation of anything yeah. in return. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, but all this is designed, right? It's, it's you know, um, people use the term swamp and stuff, you know, people joke about it. But but the fact is, the real people that control the government are the SESs, right? The appointees, people wait them out. You know, I've seen it countless times. People show up and say, hey, you have to do this, right? And they, everybody stands up. Yes, sir. You know, we do this. And then they wait. Nothing happens. They come back a quarter later. So did it happen? Did you do it? Oh, you know, with working it, you know. And then they wait time, two years, the guy is gone, and then they move on, right? Although the whole time, though, the SES is controlling the show, right? Because they are the one, you know, getting the job done, uh, you know, or at least telling what people to do. Uh, so that's that's the way the system is designed. It's it's the same in contracting, right? See, and, and how is it not that people don't understand exactly what you said previously in this episode of, hey we're not going to keep up. We're not going to keep up with tomorrow's fight. And people would rather just not do the job because it's more convenient for them. Do they not realize the severity of the, the, the reality of losing that fight or not being prepared for it? I think there's many things, right? I think first, you know, they, they're one piece of the puzzle. So they feel like, Hey, you know, it's not just my responsibility to do all this stuff, you know? So it's like, you know, complacency, you know, we've won for so long, or allegedly won for so long, although I, if you look back, I'm not sure we won much. You know, we, we spent a lot, that's for sure. You look at Afghanistan debacle, right? And, and people get away, you know, with stuff like that. There's no one held accountable, you know. It's kind of a disgrace. Um, and you see that again and again. You know, it's, it's just it's just very scary, right? And and uh, both on the military side, you know, the higher the rank, usually uh, the more complacent they become, right? Um there is exceptions, but it, they are very rare. Okay, I've worked with everybody, right? Um, and the appointees, you know, they they want to make some want to make some noise, but they don't want to make too much noise, right? It's it's very political, right? Um, and then of course the carrier SES, well, they they really didn't make enough money. I mean, the fact is we're just underpaying these people, right? You're running a sixty billion budget and you're getting paid one hundred eighty thousand a year. That sounds like a lot for some people, but the fact is, you know, on the commercial side, you would be paid, you know, half a mil, a mil, you know, um, so you take a massive pick up, you know, you can't get stocks, right? It's, it's just so, you know, the constraint for me and what they did to me, you know, despite approving my stock, then coming back to me and say, hey, you have 24 hours to sell your Microsoft and Amazon stock. And I lost a lot of money uh, to keep the job because they woke up after four months in the job and told me, hey, you need to sell your stock. You have 24 hours to sell it. It's just, you know, you would never see that anywhere else, but um, I, I even wonder if it's legal, by the way, but, um, you know, it's just, and I did, right? And, and then when I did, they're like, wow, you know, we can't get rid of this guy, right? Because if he's going to lose that kind of money, you know, uh, overnight, that means he's serious about staying, you know? <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think that was an attempt to uh, to kick me out, you know, but uh, didn't work out. Uh, but, you know, that, that just tells you, right, the... Uh, uh, the conflict of interest are just massive. The fact that you can literally award a you know a billion dollar contract and then leave the government and go work for the the prime you just gave a bunch of money to is kind of reverse kickbacks, right? It's just it's just it's just mind boggling to me. Um, 
but you know that's the world well, we live in that's and not supposed the, the complacency is there it's it's just you see it all over the place you know the, i think some of people realize right how bad it is back to your point right um they just maybe feel like it's 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 it's, it's not their problem i don't know well, and I, I, I thought that's not supposed to be able to happen. Like I thought all of these checks and balances are into not allow companies to create moats and, and, you know, pretty much non-competes and not allow people to grease the palms of other people and then get jobs from them later. Like, isn't that what all of this bureaucracy was built to stop? No, it's the opposite, right? Enables? So you can go work for a prime, but you can't come back and sell to the agency so like someone, let's say you're in the Air Force, right? You 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 sell a billion dollar contract to a big prime. You go, you leave the government, go work for the prime. Usually you have a one year freeze or something like that, where you cannot come back from that prime and come sell to the Air Force. But you can go sell to the Navy, right? So so you could still be hired. By the way, you could still be hired and do nothing for a year, right? And and I mean the yeah. prime would probably be fine paying you for a year and just wait, right? And, and you just have a cushy vacation for you. You just gave them a million, a billion bucks, right? So there's nothing that prevents, yeah. right, the hiring. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. The uh, So kind of shifting gears. So DevSec and then uh, if we can explain DevSec and then explain the zero trust uh, just for people yeah. who haven't kind of stayed up on all this stuff. Yeah, so DevSecOps, Dev Development Sec Security Ops Operations is kind of removing the barriers right that we see between the development teams, the cyber teams, and the operation teams running you know software in production, right? So it's a it's a whole software life cycle. is is making sure through automation and automated testing, security scanning, and all the stuff we do to make sure software is good and and running the way it should, and not breaking existing features, so we're not creating you know uh, bugs and issues. And through that automation, you get to release software multiple times a day instead of waiting years, right? You you get smaller incremental delivery of value, right? Uh, that is really um, bringing tangible outcomes, but, but small, so you're not breaking big things, right? If you wait five years to release, right, you're going to have this massive software update. It's going to be a nightmare, right? You're going you're gonna to struggle because it's going to change a lot of things. It's going to be a massive lift. If you just deliver, you know, 20 times a day, small, tiny new things, it's very unlikely it's going to break something big, right? Particularly because of the automated testing we bring to the table. So you have a lot of automated tests. And so now you're in a situation where you can actually deliver faster without compromising security and safety, right? That's what a SpaceX does when they can do 17,000 build of software a day, uh, three hardware-in-the-loop testing a day, and update software hours before the launch, right? Because they know they're not going to break things and funny enough, you know, that the Air Force was initially freezing um, all launches uh, software update 60 days before launch, allegedly because of safety. So they would say, hey, don't touch the software, you know, 50 days from a launch. And so the launches that SpaceX was doing for the Air Force added a, an older software because of the freeze, which allegedly was created for safety reasons. But the fact is it was actually making us less safe because SpaceX has had fixes that we couldn't have because of the freeze. So the software was less secure and less good because of that 60-day freeze of safety for safety reason. When we removed it, when I was a little frustrated, I was like, this makes no sense. Let's remove it. Uh, so we have a party with commercial, right? Uh, now we have the best of breed, right? But you're not stuck behind 60 days behind. 
that just shows you, right? People, I mean, if you think about it, right, it's kind of makes sense for someone to say, you know what, we're going to freeze software for 60 days because we want to be safe. We don't want to, you know, let development teams create a bunch of bugs right before launch. He's going to, you know, if something goes wrong, it's probably not good, which on, on principle makes sense if you don't use DevSecOps and you don't have the ability to automate the deployment of the software on the hardware to test it, see if it's going to behave the same way, see if it's going to be safe, right? If you don't have any of these capabilities, it makes sense. But once you move to the modern software or DevSecOps, you have the ability to test the software on the cloud and then on the on the hardware, uh, on the real rocket, and you can see, hey, it, it behaves the same way it should. Now you can actually move faster and be more safe. And so sometimes, again, we, we create policies and create, uh, you know, bureaucracy, um, trying to solve a problem and we make the problem worse. I feel like that that is a common trend, you know, something doing something bad with the best intentions. Uh, so with the so then now we're talking about zero trust. Uh, so what is what does zero trust mean when we're talking about this, uh, you know, kind of uh, data and networks? Yeah, so for Zero Trust, is kind of a new, well, not so new, it's six years old, right? I've been trying to push it uh, in the government for six years. Um, you know, a lot of people felt we were crazy, but now they all embrace it because it's mandated by the president. So now people are like, yeah, we should do this, you know. But uh, uh, Zero Trust is moving away from uh, the perimeter defense, right? Back in the day, you had a firewall, you know, you had a data center, you had a big wall, um, once you get in the wall, you're trusted, right? Um, and so you lose a VPN or something like that to get in the wall, right? Um, the perimeter defense is kind of obsolete now because the fact is you have mobile devices, you have clouds. So there is not just one perimeter, right? You have a bunch of little locations and, and the bigger you are, the more locations you have and mobile devices. And if one mobile device is compromised with the malware, now you're in the, the perimeter. So you can, a malicious actor could get into the cron rule just by using one device and slowly moving laterally into the network and finding the, the data and the, the stuff they want to steal or whatever, right? Um, that's the perimeter defense. That's updated because of cloud and, and mobile and, and all that new, you know, expansion of IT. Uh, the zero trust concept is to say nothing is trusted. You know, we're going to assess each device state. We're going to assess the device, the user identity, right? And based on the user identity and the role of the user in the organization, and the device being used, if it's a mobile device, if it's a government device, if it's a personal device, you know, based on the risk and the state of the device, if it's patched, right? And based on who you are as a person, we're going to whitelist you access to things in the enterprise cloud or on-premise or wherever it is. Um, so you're allowed to see only what you're supposed to see. So if you're, you know, if you're in uh, human resources, you would have access to, you know, uh, maybe some PII, and, and if you're not, you shouldn't get to see it, right? So it's really granular micro-segmentation based on who you are and the device you're using, and it, it's re replacing VPNs. It's still, you know, encrypted and all the good stuff, but it's it's very precise. And for data, you can even go down to the to, to labeling data down to the to the cell level. So like the, the what could be TSSCI, to, could be secret rel, but the who would be TSSCI, and, 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 and so based on your clearance and, and the device you're using, if it's a clear device or not, you would get access to different things, right? So it's, it's very precise. It enables you to flatten the network so we don't have 20 devices on our desks anymore, right? So all this kind of concept is completely disrupting the cyber world uh, to, to move away from the, the firewall perimeter model. 
See, that sounds amazing. And that sounds like something that, that would be better and, and create a lot more uh, opportunities to do more with less. Because like you said, having, having three computers at your desk and you're clicking through one to the next to the next because you're trying to work on different stuff. It's just kind of ridiculous. Uh, can, can the Air Force do that? I don't want to have little faith in them, but I mean, can they actually roll that out and do it effectively and, and create this environment? Because it seems like as somebody who spent 11 years in the, in the military, it seems too good to be true that we would actually get there. So we can, I mean, te- technically, it's technically feasible. Now we, we had, you yeah. know, first I created an amazing team to do it and we did a, a big chunk of it um, for, for a big chunk of the cloud and, and uh, uh, software teams. And, and we were going to spread it for JADC2, you know, the joint all domain command and control uh, and ABMS, you know, to, to really do uh, uh, flatten the SecRel universe, all the 58 networks of uh, mission partners, all the nations we share data with. Instead of having 58 networks, we could flatten to one. And, uh, you know, uh, DevSec Dev was very excited about it. And uh, she, you know, she uh, asked me at the time, uh, you know, with the joint staff, J6, to become the CSO also for the joint staff and, and JetC2. And all we we're supposed to get is like 30 mil, you know, to, to do it. And uh, they couldn't find the money. So that's why I left. I got frustrated a little bit. Uh, when we had the, the MVP lined up, you know, we convinced Microsoft and Amazon to connect their backbone, add Starlink on top of it, um, add 5G, you know, 5G providers. We even put on top on the roof uh, of the, uh, the, the the Pentagon with uh, Preston Dunlap, the former chief architect, you know, of the Air Force and Space Force. So we, we everything was lined up, you know, it was all going to get done in six months, you know, and then they couldn't find 30 mil, you know, running error for the budget, you know, something that's supposedly yeah. pushed by... DevSecDev, right? So you couldn't find. So that's where you're like, really, you know, what's going on here? You know, and uh, it, it's just very frustrating. You know, in the meantime, the Air Force, you know, with a mission uh, partner office, MPCO, is spending uh, 150 mil to try to do it. You know, and uh, we only need 12 rate to do a flat and cloud secret rel. 12 million. That's it. You know, to do it in six months. Um, have a, a Sencom and Paycom connected to it. Um, hybrid options, so if the cloud gets bombed, you know, we would have backups on premise, you know. All the good stuff was there, you know. Uh, we had the teams lined up, and then unfortunately, you know, even the guy we assigned, uh, Steve Hesseholz, was uh, uh, the CTO ACC helping me do the zero trust stuff, and he ended up leaving too because he uh, he got so frustrated of not getting the money. So now he's at uh, FDAC, you know, so... Uh, that's the issue, right? We, we, we're losing a lot of the top talent. You know, people get frustrated because you, you hear the, the talk, right? Uh, everybody is talking a good game uh, from the secretary down, right? But uh, nothing happens, you know, and and the, the funding we're asking is is running error. I mean, it's nobody, you know, just don't do one F-35. I don't care. You know, we can do without a, an F-35, I promise you, you know. So, but we can do without software, you know, and we can do without cloud and we can do without network and we can do without data you know so that's just sad to see you know it seems like it's just weird because like you said they're they're allocating funds elsewhere to the same problem set just for whatever reason they couldn't get those funds to this specific 
job. It, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. And but sadly, so many things don't make sense. Uh, speaking, it's, it's silo within silos. You know, people. Th those silos are defined very early. You know, through uh, uh, the Congress acquisition acquisition process. You know, it's. Uh, you know, I mean, let's start also by maybe maybe creating some time limits in Congress. How about that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's, I think that's one of the parts that's difficult for the military, and, and maybe you can speak to this more, is that even even the highest levels in the DOD, they don't really have control over their own budget, right? Because it's all allocated to them. So even if what they want to do, sometimes they legitim legitimately don't get that cash, right? Yeah, but I mean, I, mean, I can tell you, if, if they really wanted to find 30 mil, they could, right? Uh, Dr. Roper, yeah. when we created Platform One, he, he went to some of the big programs and say, hey, instead of you spending 20 mil a pop to create DevSecOps, we, we just, we're just going to take the money and we're going to merge it into one program and, and we're going to do it for you, you know? And we did it in, uh, in uh, you know, 90 days, you know? Uh, so when people want to do stuff, they can, you know? So if DevSecDef really wanted to find 30 mil, I find it pretty unlikely that we couldn't find it. You know, I, so I don't know what's going on, but uh, it's just very, um, very scary. And I, I think some of the reason for, uh, you know, my, my take, if you ask me, is because of our acquisition model of the government being the prime and contracting a bunch of companies, including small businesses, but a majority of small businesses because they are better at software, right? And so like, Having diversity, like Platform One has thirty-seven companies on contract on the service play, right? So we have we have diversity of companies, right? We don't just don't have one big prime. So the prime have have less control over you know what they usually do with the subs because usually they can control the whole food chain, right? Because they're the prime. Um, in this case, yeah. they would be one of the subs, really, um, and and the subs wouldn't be their subs; they would be subs to us. So now we're the prime, you know. And they don't like that, right? So my take is the prime push pretty hard to make sure we're not the team picked to do this, um, so that they can end up back at DISA with a big uh, multi-billion-dollar contract uh, that will never get done. But at least it's uh, you know back to the business model that they like to see. You know, <laughs> oh, that's so unfortunate. What are uh, so what are some true constraints? Obviously, around just lack of effort, lack of ability, you know, in the DOD, there are, there are obviously some real constraints working with classified, working with across bases, all that. What are some true constraints that, that actually exist that we need to overcome rather than just lack of effort? I mean, other than fixing, you know, everything I just talked about, which all constraints, obviously, but uh, we yeah. demonstrate a small group of people can actually get stuff done in, in the behemoth, you know, that is DOD and, and without, so, so it is doable, right? So it's, I don't think there are any actual hard constraints. We could get anything okay. done even on, on the SAP side. I mean, there was no limit. I mean, it's, it just creates more complexity, but it's all doable. I think people feel like, you know, DOD is special and we should have special software. We're not special. I mean, we're special as a mission, right? But, but software is software and, and we're not special in software and we should just use best of breed we should stop creating snowflakes and custom software and, and stuff we don't need to do. You know, uh, just piggyback on the open source commercial uh, common sense stuff, right? Um, hire more competent people. We, we just put these poor, you know, kernels and other kernels in charge of big programs like cloud and stuff. And they never even manage a, you know, to run a, you know, a data center at home or, you know, a small server at home. 
but then we want them to run the cloud for the largest organization on the planet. You know, how is that going to work? It's like, it's like you, you wouldn't see Google go hire the, the head of cloud and be like, yeah, we just take someone that's never done cloud before. That, that just sounds like a good idea. You know, and it would never happen, right? Uh, yeah, we do that. We just randomly appoint, you know, people based on being a material leader and some acquisition nonsense to become, you know, the program manager of the cloud and the DevSecOps and, you know, whatever else we do. Um, and then we wonder why there's no expertise and these people are good, you know, they're good people, right? I'm not blaming the people, but we put them in a very tough position. Now they have to invest money and they have to decide what to do, right? So like ITAS, right? The ITAS is this program that's supposed to move all the network of the Air Force as a service and, you know, connect us to 5G and all that, that good stuff. Um, it took for three years, they were doing risk reduction efforts trying to see what sticks because they had no clue. And they were just like, you know, I would be like, I just do this. I know exactly what to do because I've done it before. You know, just do this, you know. Uh, but they wouldn't make decisions because they've never done it before. And, you know, for them, it's like, well, you know, we need to have data to, to pick and, you know, we need to try things out. And like, there's nothing to try. It's network, you know. Any company has it, you know. It's, it's not, we're not in the fifties, you know, um, and and yet, you yeah. know, those guys don't have the expertise, you know. So they they wouldn't make decisions. So in, in order not to make a decision, you you do pilots of pilots and MVPs and tests, and you know, and nothing is ever done in production at scale. When you could just you put me in the job, I I do an award right away, and we're, we're up and running in in twelve months, you know. Um, four years later, they're just starting to do awards now. I mean, it's just you know, it's ridiculous. The, uh, I heard you talking, so we were we got a chance to be on a uh, webinar not too long ago, and uh, sadly, I ran out of time, so I had to leave, but I heard you kind of explaining, uh, kind of it sounded like a vision for the future of the development, where almost what I imagined when I heard you saying it was like a DARPA, uh, but specifically for like software end user interaction. Uh, so can you, do you know what I'm talking about? And can you kind of explain what you were talking about there? Cause I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, we, we invest a lot of money into startups and companies, right? And, uh, often these new investments end up in a, what we call the valley of death, right? They, they end up not being transitioned between the development stage and the production stage, mostly because we give a bunch of money, uh, to companies with uh, programs like AFWorks and Spaceworks and, you know, DAU is doing stuff and, you know, DARPA is doing stuff. But then it's it's so built in vacuums and in a, in a, in an environment that's not tied to production with real data and real accreditation requirement for the software to pass the cyber requirements. It's, it's very tough to transition it, right? So they end up dying and, and, and the government is not even helping make introductions to program offices that could potentially want to use it. So it's almost like, you know, we're giving money to companies and then we don't help them go to the next phase. You know, it's like if you're a VC, yeah. right, you're going to invest into startups and you know a bunch of companies, you have a great network, but you're not going to make introductions. <laughs> you're just going to say, I don't want to, I don't want to help you. You know, I just gave you money, but I'm, I'm just not going to help you. That's what we do. Literally, it's, it's no joke, you know. Um, and we do that with, uh, you know, three billion a year of taxpayer money. Um and then we wonder why there is no transition. Well, it should be mandated that the government has made at least five, six introductions, qualified introductions to prime offices so the companies can transition the stuff. And more importantly, if these people start using DevSecOps from day one, they can release in production multiple times a day with real data, not in a lab, in a vacuum, you know, completely disconnected from the rest of the world. It's just common sense. 
you know, removing the bottlenecks, removing the the bureaucracy as much as possible, and streamlining the process for these companies to be in front of customers that want to use the product that we actually help them fund to build. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. you would think it's uh, you know a monkey would come up with that one, but um, you know. Well, and that's what I feel. You are exactly right. Is so many companies have that exact problem. They get funding, they maybe get a sip or two, and then they just kind of sit there and, you know, they're obviously trying to figure stuff out, but the problem is finding more end users is not easily figured out. You know, I mean, most of the, the reason I know Julian from Crowdbotics is because it was a friend of a friend and we just text, there was no, Hey, you're going to be, you know, get exposure to all these spark sales and all these innovation DOD members. They, they just kind of have to run and gun and ask for favors and do that kind of stuff to, to meet new people who who objectively want the products. They just don't know they exist because there's no good way to kind of communicate, communicate across the organizations there. Is there, is there anything I'm missing there? Like I know there's, there's collider events and stuff like that, but do you see anything getting better or a way that we could do that better in the future? Yeah, no, nothing is really getting better, and and the collider and all this stuff is not good enough. You know, it's it's crashing the surface. You know, um, the answer is simple, right? We should assign a a government person that's uh, responsible at least for all the phase twos at minimum, right? Um, for sabers, right? Where we assign someone that's responsible for making introductions, right? To at least five, six program offices, qualified introductions, be on the call for an hour for each, you know, so six hours, you know, for each and and really use their networks to make the right introductions to the right people that would need the product, not just, you know, stupid, you know, unqualified introductions. I'm talking, you know, qualified introductions to the right programs. If, you, if you've done something on F-16, you could be introduced to F-22s, you know, B-21, you know, F-35, whatever, right, based on the use case. Um, and and for for the the company to do that is impossible because they don't know who to talk to, right? Most of these people yeah. are on LinkedIn. They don't know you know who to talk to, so it's very difficult, right? Uh, that's why I'm I'm a big proponent also for like having better way to to have that two way street through LinkedIn and, and tools like that, right? Uh, that's why I'm so active on LinkedIn because uh, well, first it's a it's a it's a massive enabler that's how I got into the government, by the way, just through LinkedIn. Uh, reaching out to government people to say, hey, I want to I want to come and help. Can you help me do that? Um, so I wouldn't even have been in the government without LinkedIn. And I sold two companies through LinkedIn. I mean, it's just a, it's just an awesome tool, right? Yeah. Uh, so anybody listening, you know, for your career, it's probably the most important tool ever, you know. Um, and so overall, you know, we need to, to have that bridge, right? And it has to be a, a mandated thing, right? When we give people money, so the government ends up doing it and I'll just uh, pretend, you know, talk about it, you know, so. Well, and I think, I think the, the incentive structure is just different. You know, like you said, like a venture capital, their incentive is if they do a really good job and these companies find success, that venture capital is going to become very profitable and then they're going to make money where I don't think it doesn't look like that uh, exists in the, in the the cyber world, you know, I think there's, there's DIU, you know, but I don't think DIU, I, I assume the incentive no, structures the are Inc-Util, different. Inc-Util would be more, more of that, right? They have the, the investment fund and they're very good at it. Right. And then they have the motivation to, to do it, you know? Um, but the rest of the models are just not, there's no reward for the government 
But the, the, the real world is there, but the people don't see it. They, they forget that the real world is you know, competing and winning against China. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing, you know, as, as kind of the end user, the, the person who, who, you know, may be doing stuff like that, that I, I see it and I'm like, man, I, I wish everybody understood and shared my, you know, desire to have a successful venture, you know, when, I, when, if that does happen. Uh, so it's, it's unfortunate when we see people who, cause again, I, I understand, you know, at some point it's just a job and you're just doing your job and you're kind of mowing along and, and just trying to keep it going. But there is a, a big reward at the, at the end of this if, if it does happen and we, we win rather than lose. So, well, There's also the, the issue is that the government people don't always have the network, right? They rotate so often. Right? You, you're assigned to AFWorks for two, three years. How are you going to know all the program offices and how, where to send people? Today is no mechanism for that, right? So, so uh, SAF AQ, right, the acquisition side of the house, needs to do better also of having a a mechanism, right, for outreach and reaching out to program offices and getting, you know, getting discussions started between teams and program offices. Instead, you know, you have the Defense Acquisition University teaching people that they should not be dependent on any other programs, that they should do everything in the vacuum because they don't want to have a dependency and then not be able to deliver the programs. So you see, you know, PEOs and material leaders and senior material leaders literally educated not to partner with people because if they do... And it goes wrong, and the dependencies, right? Um, which is fair because, quite honestly, most of the enterprise services created by the government look at this uh, is such a debacle, you know, that no one wants to use it, or it doesn't even work, or it never gets to production. You look at, uh, you know, Jedi and all this nonsense. You know, we did Cloud One in in forty five days, and we we were able to do a billion dollar, you know, of cloud a year. Uh, Jedi is still trying to do a contract vehicle. I mean, you know, it's it's a disgrace. You know, they're still working it. It's been five, five, five years. You know, I don't know what you know. No, it's called JWCC. They had to rename it because it was such a debacle. They had to come up with a new name. You know, um, and yeah, and and then if you ask the the leaders at uh, the Defense Dual Service back in the day, not the new ones that are good, but the the back in the day guys, um, you know, that now have a cushy you know job in a in a in a defense uh, you know uh, company uh, overvalued for no valued reason. Uh, these same people tell you that the biggest success of DDS is Jedi. I'm like, if that's a success, I don't know what failure means. You know, this is mind-boggling to me. I can't understand it. Uh, I, I almost had a heart attack when he told me that was his, because um, I was like, what's your success? You know, for DDS, you know, you've been there for three years. I don't see anything coming out that sticks. You do snowflakes, you put a Wi-Fi at a Pentagon that's only usable by, by DDS. How are you solving the warfighter problems you know, giving waivers that are not scalable and not usable in production. You know, how is that a thing? Instead, what I did is is fix the policies that were preventing people to get stuff done instead of, you know, trying to build snowflakes that don't stick, you know. Yeah, well, and, and I've I've seen exactly that. There were, there were times where uh, I was at a base previously and we were trying to do exactly what this whole podcast is about and exactly what you're talking about is, is shake things up. So we had a scheduling problem we found that the Google suite would be the solution because we needed connectivity at work, at home, because we had a lot of people who were working remotely and you can't get the Google suite on the network. It's not allowed, but there is a waiver for it. But the only people who get the waiver approved are innovation people because they need it to innovate. But as an end user, I don't have that same authority. I can't 
get a waiver to say, hey, I need this because it's going to make me better at fighting the fight. Only the people who can get it are the people who are enabling innovation for fighting the fight. And it was, it was so frustrating. And those are the things you look at and you're like, there's no way. There's no way this is reality, but it is. And so... Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's actually even more complex than that, right? Because, um, you know, you could have done it with Office 365. Uh, you know, it's very similar capabilities to Google Suite. Some people like one or the other, but that's usually ego-driven. It's not, you know, there is no feature difference, really. Uh, but the fact is, when we implemented Office 365, and it's not really Microsoft's fault, we, we messed it up so bad because of our cyber requirements that we made it not usable outside of the, the dot and... and we made it not work, right? So we created a problem you're facing by implementing a commercial solution wrong. So I actually, you know, where we failed you is we, we spent billions. I'm actually not a big proponent of allowing people to use G Suite because the, the fact is we're spending billions on 365. Whether or not we liked it, right? We picked it, we paid billions, right? Let's fix it and make it work because it, I use it on the commercial side and I'm just fine with it, you know? And I have no problem. Yeah. And I actually like it better than Google. It's my personal thing. But, you know, the fact is it works, you know. We messed it up, right, in DoD. It's not Microsoft's fault. I mean, some of it is, but 90% is DoD nonsense. So we would do the same thing with G Suite, you know. So, so, so you know, it, and then we would say, well, we would buy a third product. Well, no, you know, it's just let's fix the mess of 365, which we spent $10 billion on. That's a better outcome for the, you know, the taxpayer too have to be respected. You know, it's not just about the wolf fighter. You know, it's also about like, Hey, you know, we spend that kind of money. Let's fix it. You know? Well, and that's the, that's the problem though. Like we take something, well, do you know what an EFB is? It's uh, Mm -hmm. so pilots, you know, they fly with iPads now with all of their flight data, all of their stuff. Yeah. What's that? I'm a pilot. Oh yeah. What do you fly? I, I have a Saratoga, a Piper Saratoga. I'm not, I'm not a jet pilot, but I'm a, no, I'm a normal pilot. No, but pilot flying's just cool. It's, uh, it's good just getting yeah. up there, you know, kind of getting off the ground and getting a better view of things. The, uh, but yeah. yeah, so they all fly, you know. And and the funny thing is, it's like in in airplanes now, there's Garmin's and there's these like glass cockpits. Well, in in our jets, we it's don't have that because we we're not dynamic <laughs> enough. That's... And so we end up having these problems where. We're now bringing these EFBs. So it's it's exactly an iPad. That's what it is. But yep. it is the worst piece of hardware that I had because <laughs> it would, we call it bricking, like it would lock and it'd be like, hey, you didn't answer the email fast enough. So yeah. And so it's just comical that they can take something that's as user-friendly as an iPad that my kid who was 18 months old accidentally figured out how to use like that. That's the stuff that we do. We take Microsoft 360 and we yep. make it unusable. And then we take iPads and we make them unusable for safety. That's why I don't and want to like, buy more people... stuff, right? I don't want to comp- You know, the answer <laughs> is not buying more stuff, right? It's to fix the stuff we already bought and I mess it up. You know, that's... otherwise it's too easy, yeah. right? People are going to say, oh, I'm going to do whatever with Google, but we're not going to have the cyber stuff that we need at all. Not even any, any of it, right? There's nothing. There's no cyber, which is dangerous too for the nation. Right, yeah. and so they completely removed that. So I'm like, no, let's actually fix 365. We spent billions on it. That's what I was working on, right? And it's just too slow. And then since I left, the momentum kind of died, you know. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that I've seen, and maybe you can provide some insight. Is that I talk to a lot of innovation companies who are doing really cool stuff, and they make good on all their contracts, 
but the DOD just can't onboard fast enough. So the DOD is working in cycles of, you know, they're finishing now the 2024 uh, budget and they can't, they can't wedge you in there because you're not ready to be rolled out yet or whatever as a Cibber 2 going for a Cibber 3. So how are these companies supposed to stay alive while they're trying to fight to take a product that is good, that the end user wants, that they've made well to get it actually to, to commercial like rollout? And it's like they can't do it. Yeah, but that's why also it's very important to have a very big commercial presence. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't like when companies are too dependent on the government. You know, I like dual use products. So, so ideally, you know, you would find a product that, that's dual use. But I get your point. I'm not saying we shouldn't do better. We should. Uh, but at the same time, yeah. I like that, you know, uh, most companies would have maybe a 70% commercial, 30% DOD. I'm actually very scared when I see companies having, you know, majority of the business coming from servers and DOD. I think that's that's pretty toxic. It's it's not a good model, you know. So, yeah. Well, and the I guess the problem you run into is you have this issue where if the DoD needs a very specific widget, you know, solution that is only, you know, I need you to create F sixteen helmet like water bottle attachments or whatever it is, like you're not going to have a dual use there. So hopefully you have some right. other thing that's going to get you there. Yeah, these are very special. Yeah, the, but that's not the majority, right? I mean, you know, that that, yeah. that happens, but I would say it's probably the, the 20, 20, 30% top. If it's more than that, we have a problem. That means we created a situation where we need snowflakes. <laughs> uh, and do we really need it? That's always what Elon Musk says, right? He looks back at stuff. He says, we've done it forever, but should we really do it at all? It's not because we've done it forever. That's the right way to do it, right? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, one of the things you just see random stuff with like planes, you know, so F-16s, pretty much all old planes, the G suit, you know, where you like your, it pressurizes and it, it helps you stay awake under G plugs in on the left. And then in fifth gen, it plugs in on the right. And it's like, was that, <laughs> did it just conveniently work out that way? Or was it like, you got to buy all new G suits when you start flying fifth gen and you're like, this is it's a joke. It's just like, you, you know, only 4% of the code of F-22s is shot with F-35. I bet it's not an accident. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for being here with us. And uh, tell people how they can get in contact with you if they're trying to reach out. Yeah, so um, I'm on LinkedIn. So the easiest way to reach out to me is LinkedIn. And we have the show, you know, in the nick of time, every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern uh, with amazing guests every week. So uh, join us and, and come uh Learn more about tech and, and, and acquisition and culture and all the good stuff. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, everybody, you know how to reach me, and uh, we're getting out of here. Thanks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. 
So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.